Good afternoon, everyone. You may have noticed that some printed Bibles containing the Old Testament include books not commonly found in other versions. Most printed copies of the King James Version and a number of other translations typically used by Protestants contain 39 books in the Old Testament. The same writings, that is, the same material, are accepted by most Jews as Scripture, but arranged differently to total 24 books instead of 39 books, as it is in the typical English translation that's used by Protestants, including the King James and others. Those books omitted from most printed copies of the Old Testament, but included in some versions such as the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, for example, are often collecti collectively referred to as the Apocrypha, which, cons which consists of several books that are not found in the, King, the uh, typical King James Version and a number of other translations and are not found in the writings accepted by most Jews as the scriptures of the Old Testament. So how do we know whether these or other books should or should not be included in the Old Testament scriptures? In other words, how can we be sure that we are using the authentic and complete Old Testament? That's what I want to discuss in today's sermon. Now, it was to the Jews or to the circumcision in a larger sense that were committed the oracles or the word of God, the circumcision being the people of Israel. In Romans 3 and verse 1, Romans 3 and verse 1, we read, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So one of the chief advantages that the people of the circumcision, the Jews, as is mentioned here in the larger sense, the circumcision, which would have included all who were the circumcised Israelites, the chief advantage was that to them were committed the oracles of God or the words of God. Now, Moses spoke to Israel in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 8. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 8, What great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? He was speaking to the people of Israel. What great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you to, to this day? There was no other nation to whom had God had given the law in this particular way. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy 6, beginning with verse 6, it says, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets. Between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this was talking about the commandments that God had given to the people of Israel through Moses 
and that are preserved in the first five books of the Old Testament, the priests under the Old Covenant, as it was made with Israel at Mount Sinai, were required to be of the tribe of Levi and descended from Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. The, the tribe of Levi was one of the tribes descended from Jacob or Israel, of which there were 12 or 13, depending on how you count them. But the priests who were required to be of the tribe of, tribe of Levi and descended from Aaron were assisted by the Levites, and they assisted by the Levites, the priests assisted by the Levites, were charged with the task of preserving and teaching God's word as his ministers. In Malachi 2 and verse 7, Malachi 2 and verse 7, we, we read the lips of a priest. These were the priests of descendants of Aaron. The lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So the, the priests were to be knowledgeable of God's word and they were to be able to teach God's word to others. Unfortunately, they were not always faithful to this commission. As we read going on in Malachi 2 and verse 8, Malachi 2 and verse 8, the prophet, God says to them through the prophet Malachi, but you, speaking to the priesthood and the Levites, you have departed from the way, you have caused many to stumble at the law, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi. The priests and the Levites were given important responsibilities as ministers of God. But God did not work or speak ex exclusively through the priests or Levites. For example, Moses was a Levite, but he was not a priest. He was a prophet. That is, he was one through whom God worked or spoke to reveal his will as a prophet. Some of the famous prophets of the Bible were also priests, including Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others. But there were other prophets and judges chosen from time to time who were neither priests nor Levites. That included David, who's named a prophet and who's, who's mentioned as a prophet in Acts 2 and verse 30, as well as a number of others. Specifically, however, among the tribes of Israel, God gave the Levites and priests the charge of preserving and transmitting the law or the word of God. And in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18, God gave these instructions. He said, also it shall be when he, that is a physical king of Israel, a physical king, and at that time they did not have physical kings, but they would later on, as God knew. And he said, it shall be when he, that is a physical king of Israel, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. Now implied in this is that there was to be a copy of the law that was maintained by the priests. And in Deuteronomy 31, Deuteronomy 31 verse 24, 
It says, so it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. So what was referred to as the law was written in a book. And uh, the book is actually consists of the first five books of the Bible, which are attributed to Moses. And they were to take that document consisting of what is now divided into those five books. They were to put it inside the Ark of the Covenant and maintain it. So from the very beginning of the existence of the, of the Levitical priesthood, the Levites were charged with preserving the book of the law or the written word of God. Now, it, it is interesting that it was written down. It wasn't, it was given in, much of it was given in verbal form at first, but it was written down to be preserved to future generations. And so there was preserved in the tabernacle and later in the temple, the official version of the written word of God. Now, after Solomon's reign, which came much later, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel was divided and the northern tribes were soon steeped in apostasy. But the temple had been built in Judah, in Jerusalem, which was in the territory allotted to the tribe of Judah. And most all of the priests and Levites, after the kingdom was split, migrated to the area of Jerusalem and roundabout, or in other words, into where the tribe of Judah was established as a southern kingdom of the divided kingdom. And so it was among the Jews, as they came to be called, that the word of God was preserved. The Levites, most of them, and most of the priests being located there and of course the temple being there as well. For the next several hundred years, kings of the line of David ruled in Jerusalem and Judah. They ruled over the, the house of Judah or the tribe of, or the uh, kingdom of Judah. And many of the kings of Judah were unfaithful and the nation tended to follow them into idolatry. Occasionally, however, a righteous king would arise to lead the people back to God. King Manasseh began to reign in Judah in the 7th century before Christ. Manasseh was a son of the righteous king Hezekiah. Manasseh had a very long reign of 55 years. However, it is said of Manasseh in 2 Kings 21 and verse 2, 2 Kings 21 and verse 2 of Manasseh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Among the evils that were the work of Manasseh is he defiled the temple of God with altars to false gods. He placed idolatrous images in the temple. He led the people into idolatry and apostasy and he murdered many innocent people. After his death, and the death of his son Amon, who reigned for only two years, Josiah, the son of Amon, was made king 
when he was eight years old. Now it said of Josiah in 2 Kings 22 and verse 2, 2 Kings 22 and verse 2 of Josiah, it says, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now remember that Manasseh had ruled for 55 years and tacked onto that were two more years of his son Amon who followed in his footsteps and doing evil. So for a long time, the temple was a place of false worship, of idolatry. Many of the prophets and people who were interested in being faithful to God were, had been murdered. And so the whole system had fallen into a state of chaos and confusion. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, however, work was begun to repair and restore the temple. And as the work was getting underway, the book of the law, which had evidently been more or less forgotten to a large extent, the book of the law was found in the temple. Now, it probably wasn't uh, totally forgotten because after all, uh, Josiah began to seek God when he was about 16 and he had to have something to base that interest on. But in his 18th year, the book of the law was found in the temple, as you can read in 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34. In 2 Kings 22 and verse 11, it says, Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. The book of the law which had been found was read to him. And it says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes, then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Akbar, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the scribe, and Asahiah, the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and the others went to Huldah the prophetess, and they spoke with her. Then she said to them, Thus says the Lord, of Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not, not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place." So they brought back word to the king. 
Not long after the death of Josiah, in accordance with the, the warnings the kings and the people of Judah had been given by the prophets, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem and eventually conquered and destroyed the city and carried the Jewish people into captivity. The Babylonian exile affecting the Jews began about 605 B.C. or before the common era as it's sometimes referred to and culminated with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. The return of some of the Jews to Palestine began in 538 B.C. Not all of the Jews returned to Palestine after the captivity, but some did, beginning about 538 B.C. or C.E., whichever way you prefer to that year. Some years later, Ezra, a priest and skilled scribe, led in establishing in Jerusalem a group of scholars to preserve and teach the scriptures according to tradition. And we don't have this precisely recorded in the Bible itself as far as this establishing these scholars to, to systematically go about preserving the Word of God, but it does fit both what God had commanded the priests to do and also what the Bible says about Ezra fits this Jewish tradition. In Ezra 7 and verse 6, Ezra 7 and verse 6, it says, Ezra came up from Babylon and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. He was a skilled scribe, meaning that he was a, one who copied the scriptures. And so he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which God, the Lord God of Israel had given. So he was one of those who was charged with copying and keeping alive the scriptures and maintaining the scriptures among the priesthood and among the nation. Going on in verse 11, King Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire had authorized Ezra to return to Palestine and carry out certain tasks. And he wrote a letter, which is recorded in Ezra chapter 7. And in verse 11 of Ezra 7, it says, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the word, in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. So Ezra is acknowledged as a priest, a scribe, and an expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. And the letter read in part, the letter that was written by King Artaxerxes in verse in Ezra 2 and verse 25, it says, You, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, and that's, that's talking about the River Jordan and those in, in Palestine where the territory of Judah was, and that you may judge all who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. So Ezra was charged by the king of the Persian Empire, which was in a, in a sense ruled 
that part of the world at that time dominated the Middle East and certain other parts of the world. It was the dominant empire at that time. And he authorized and even commissioned Ezra to teach the law of God to the people of Judah. And so we read in Nehemiah 8 about Ezra doing exactly what he had been commissioned to do. In Nehemiah 8, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded Israel. So we see that Ezra the scribe had a book of the law that was preserved there in Jerusalem. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah. At his left hand, uh, Pedaiah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. Now, what's significant about this is it wasn't just Azariah or Ezra the priest, but it was a company of other men who were with him to help teach the people and to help them understand the law. So he wasn't just doing this by himself. He had a whole company of other people there working with him. So this fits in precisely with the Jewish tradition that Ezra established a group of people to preserve and teach the law. So it goes on to say they read distinctly from the book in the, under, in the uh, law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep for the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now those scholars who worked under, beginning under Ezra's supervision, and this continued after Ezra's death, these scholars who took charge of, of copying and preserving the scriptures are called sulfurim. 
from the Hebrew word sapar, which means to count. The Sopharim and later the Masoretes who succeeded them in preserving and transmitting the Hebrew text went to great lengths to preserve as faithfully as possible the text. Now you might think if you're copying something by hand, you're copying a document by hand, writing it out with whatever writing instruments they had at that time, that there would be a tendency to make mistakes. You might miss a line or miss a word or, or whatever. So in order to eliminate mistakes to the greatest degree possible, they went to great lengths to preserve the text from such errors. And they recorded in notes many details related to copying, including the number of times the several letters occur in various books of the Bible. In other words, they would count, say, the, the, the Hebrew letter Aleph, they would count the number of times that letter or any other letter occurred in a particular book of the Bible. So when the book was copied, they would compare the two versions and make sure that every letter was there. They counted the number of words. They counted the, they identified the middle word and so forth. And so there were a number of devices that they developed to prevent errors. And old copies that were too worn to be used reliably were destroyed. Now, since the, the, the received text of the Old Testament is called the Masoretic text, because it is a product of these Masoretes, Masoretic text means handed down. So it was handed down by the Masoretes, and along with the text itself, were notes on the margins which had all of these devices written, the, the number of letters, the number of words, and so on and so forth. So the notes were there along with the text, and the notes are called the Masora. So the text and the notes were handed down from one generation to, to the other over a period of hundreds of years. And these same individuals also decided what material was to be included in the official book of the law or the book that was handed down as God's word, God's inspired word. Now, Jesus confirmed the authenticity and authority of the Hebrew Bible as it had been compiled and preserved by scribes and of which the official version was preserved in the temple up to his day. In Luke 24 and verse 44, Luke 24 and verse 44, we read, Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. All things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now, these words 
that he said, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms refer to three divisions of the scripture of the Hebrew Bible. These three divisions, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms are referred to commonly by the Jews by the term Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K, which is an acronym constituted from the initial Hebrew letters of the three divisions of the scriptures, the law being the Torah. The Hebrew word Torah is the origin of the first part of the acronym Tanakh. The prophets from the Hebrew word Nevi'im and the writings Ketuv'im. The letter is often called the writings, the book of Psalms. It was mentioned here because it was the largest section of the writings, which, which also included several other books that we know from the Old Testament. So it's sometimes simply referred to as the Psalms as being representative of, of that section of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, in speaking to some of the Jewish leaders of his day and like-minded people who had preceded them, who hated Jesus and persecuted him, Jesus said to them in Matthew 23 and verse 35, he said, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, Jesus was not speaking chronologically because others were martyred after Zechariah, including Uriah, who was murdered by Jehoiakim nearly 200 years later as you can read in Jeremiah chapter 26. However, in the Hebrew Bible, according to the rabbinical order, the official order of the Bible, the first book in the Bible is Genesis, which, re which records the murder of Abel, who was the first one to be mentioned in the Bible as having been murdered. The last book in the Hebrew Bible is Chronicles, which in your Bible probably your English translation is divided into 1st and 2nd Chronicles, but in the Hebrew Bible, it, it's simply the book of Chronicles, which includes the entirety of 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And it is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. And so the last mention of a prophet, if you go from the beginning of the Hebrew Bible to the end of it, the last mention in that what we call the Old Testament of a prophet being martyred is Zechariah in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. We read 2 Chronicles 24 and verse 17, uh, verse 17, after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king and the king listened to them. Therefore they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, and they testified against them, but they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, 
who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, The Lord look on it and reply. So this is the last place in the Hebrew Bible, if you go from the front to the back, where it tells about a prophet being martyred. Now, what this means is that Jesus affirmed the authority of the Hebrew Bible as constituted and virtually universally accepted among the Jews at the time of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, Josephus was a priest, as you probably know, a Jewish priest who wrote a history of the Jews and wrote some other documents relating to Jewish history in the first century, some decades after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in one of the books that he wrote, which is called Against Apion, he said this concerning the Hebrew canon. He said, For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another as the Greeks have, but only 22 books, which contain the records of all the past times which are justly believed to be divine, and of them five belong to Moses, which contain his laws and the traditions of the origin of mankind till his death. This interval of time was little short of 3,000 years. But as to the time from the death of Moses till the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, the prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. It is true our history hath been written since Artaxerxes very particularly, but hath not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers, because there has, has not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. And how firmly we have given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do for, do, uh, for during so many ages was, have already passed. No one has been so bold as either to add anything to them, to take anything from them, or to make any change in them. But it has become natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem these books to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them and if occasion be willing to die for them. For it is no new thing for our captives, many of them in number and frequently in time, to be seen to endure racks and deaths of all kinds upon the theaters that they may not be obliged to say one word against our laws and the records that contain them. Now, in the books that are mentioned here, the 22 books, as he mentioned, the record ends about 400 B.C., the last book to be written, the last prophet, that is the last book of prophecy that's found in the Bible, is Malachi, 
which was about around 400 B.C. and the and the uh, things that happened regarding Ezra and Nehemiah and so forth, all of that takes us up to about 400 B.C. And then after that, that's where it ends as far as the Hebrew scriptures are concerned. And no other writings were recognized by the Jews for the most part, with the exception of, of some heretics. No other writings were recognized as, as scripture among the Jews after that, nor have they been by most Jews. Now, you may have noticed that Josephus says the Jews recognized 22 books, whereas I said earlier that there are 24 books of the Hebrew Old Testament recognized by the Jews. But whether it's counted as 22 or 24, it's the same documents that are in both and that are also reflected in the books of the English translation, such as the, the New King, the New, the King James Version, and the New King James Version, that are based on the Masoretic text, as far as the Hebrew Old Testament is concerned. Now, you might ask, well, why are there twenty, twenty-two, or or, or uh, recognized in some places and twenty-four elsewhere? Well, it's believed by some scholars that the Jews originally recognized the books as twenty-four and later combined the books of Ruth and Judges into a single book and Jeremiah and Lamentations into a single book to make 22 books to agree with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Other scholars believe the books were arranged into 22 originally and later were rearranged to make a total of 24. Currently, the Jews arrange the Old Testament canon into 24 books where Ruth and Judges are separate books and Jeremiah and Lamentations are separate books. But it could very well be that the 22-book arrangement was, in fact, the original arrangement of the Hebrew Old Testament. But either way, they contain the same material, only arranged differently. Jesus also confirmed the authority of the Hebrew Scriptures when he said, in Matthew 5, verse 18, Matthew 5, and verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, the words jot and tittle refer to minuscule features of the Hebrew script, and his remark implies that the text of the scriptures would be faithfully preserved. And so we have in 1 Peter this statement, 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed but incorruptible through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Now the basis for the teachings of the apostles was the scriptures of the Old Testament along with the teachings of Jesus Christ. So the word of God, which endures forever, would include the Hebrew 
Old Testament scriptures. Archaeological discoveries, as well as the methodology employed in copying that we mentioned earlier, attest to the remarkable fidelity by which the Hebrew Bible has, in fact, been preserved. For example, you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in the Dead Sea area some years ago. And these scrolls belong to a heretical Jewish sect believed to have begun burying the scrolls well before the time of Christ. And these scrolls contain manuscripts or fragments of all the Old Testament books except Esther. This community that preserved these scrolls, that buried them, was a community that had separated itself from the main body of Jewish believers, and they had some uh, rather strange doctrines and ideas of their own that, that are not found in the Bible. And because of its heretical nature and the fact that its scribes were not officially recognized by the Jewish priesthood, it would not be remarkable if there were discrepancies between texts of Scripture, the sect had copied, and the Masoretic text. Yet the virtually complete text of Isaiah, for example, that they had buried probably before 100 B.C., as we read in in a, in a book called Archaeology in the Bible by G. Frederick Owen. He says of, of this scroll of Isaiah, it agrees in almost every respect with the standard version of our Bible derived from the Masoretic or the traditional Hebrew text. Now, I might mention that the oldest copy of the Masoretic text dates to about a thousand the year uh, 1000 A.D., somewhere in that, d during that era. So the oldest version, the oldest extant version of the Masoretic text is at least a thousand years older than this scroll of Isaiah, and yet the two are virtually identical. What that tells us is it tells us the the accuracy with which the copying was done from one generation to the other. He goes on to comment that the differences are minor and in the main amount to little more than copyists' errors and orthography or spelling errors and other nuances of language, which is itself strong testimony to the fact that the standard text was well established. End of quote. In some other books, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, where there is more divergence, the traditional text is generally vindicated as being more likely to have preserved the original and such variations as exist according to the, the same source uh, do not materially affect the meaning of Scripture. Other Hebrew ma manuscripts from the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt have been found and the Bar Kokhba revolt occurred at 130, in 135 A.D. And in the manuscripts from that time, I think these were found at the fortress of Masada, but uh, they are said by the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia to be nearly identical with the text preserved in the standard Masoretic text. 
And I might mention also that some believe that the temple scroll, the official temple copy, was taken to the area where the Jewish, the Jews made their last stand sometime probably at the time that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Of course, that's speculation. It's not known for sure that this these texts were, in fact, the official temple copy, but it's a possibility. The Hebrew Scriptures accepted as authentic and authoritative by Josephus and contemporaneous Jews are the same as the Old Testament Scriptures which we have today and are referred to as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant in the, in the New Testament. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 14, it says their minds were blinded, speaking of the minds of the Israelites, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. So those scriptures are referred to as the Old Testament. And those scriptures form the basis of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, as we read in Ephesians 2 and verse 19. Ephesians 2 and verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, which would imply the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Also in 2 Peter 1 and verse 19. 2 Peter 1 and verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this is an endorsement of the prophecies found in the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament was translated into Greek, during the Hellenistic era, I forget the precise date that it was translated, but I think it was around 70 B.C., but I'm not sure. But anyway, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It may have been translated more than once into Greek, but the extant uh, version is of, of the Greek Old Testament is called the Septuagint, and only, quote, Christianized versions of the Septuagint copies date uh, no earlier than the fourth, fourth century of the current era, even though it was translated, you know, quite a, several hundred years before that. But the earliest versions that still exist are so-called Christianized versions, and they date to no earlier than the fourth century. And the, those versions of the Septuagint do not have the books of the Old Testament in the same order as the Hebrew Scriptures. They also contain books that were not accepted as inspired Scripture by Jesus or by the apostles. 
nor by most Jews either in ancient times nor in modern times. And these books are called the Apocrypha. These are the apocryphal books that somehow crept into the, into the Old Testament as it was accepted by some professing Christians. None of the apocryphal books is quoted in the New Testament. None of them is quoted, and they must also be rejected as containing palpable errors, obvious heresies, and absurdities. Now, some of them, a few of them, are useful as history, such as First and Second Maccabees, which have uh, some interesting and useful history. They're useful for historical information, but they do not measure up as Scripture. The quality of its content, its internal consistency and unity, despite having been written by many authors over a period of more than a thousand years, its established historical veracity, despite many attacks and fulfilled prophecy, all further attest to the authenticity and authority of the accepted Old Testament canon.